I'd like you to turn to Joshua chapter 10. We're in Joshua 10. I'm going to read this chapter. It's lengthy, 43 verses. Uh, but if we're going to understand uh, how we walk through it, you're going to have to hear the whole thing. So you can follow along. Uh, Joshua 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made a peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth-horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth-horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ayalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? The, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave, set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machida. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards, Joshua struck them, put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, 
Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the caves where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libnah and fought against Libnah. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king what he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Libnah to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libnah. And Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all of Israel passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all of Israel went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its town and every person in it. And he left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all of Israel turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and its towns. And they struck him and they, he struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libnah and its king. So he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Word of the Lord. Let me share something with you that you are acutely aware of, uh, but I'm not sure everybody gives it much thought. God moves supernaturally. God moves supernaturally. He primarily moves supernaturally to save and protect his children, but there's a lot more to the story than that. We'll get to it. He, for those that oppose him, uh, they face supernatural destruction, uh, a devastation that is so terrible, we're going to get a peek at it today, that it's beyond the imagination of most people that consider it. Uh, God moves supernaturally. We're going to see that in our text today. We're working our way through Joshua, and we're reading our Joshua to see what it says about God. Learning about God, we find out about ourselves. and But we want to find out how this this brutally bloody book fits into the overall narrative of the Bible. What's it doing here? Uh, how it fits into God's redemptive plan, the arc of, of the story of God's redemptive plan. So this morning we're looking at chapter 10. Our sermon is called Destruction. Happy Sunday morning. We've got a sermon on destruction. This is part 10 of our series, The Promise and the Land. And last week we saw the Gibeonites spared, the pagan nation was spared and found out that they would eventually be grafted in, that they would eventually be adopted into the family of God. Now, all this happened even though they lied and deceived. And even though Joshua and Israel made some bad decisions, some questionable decisions and all that, that did them apart from God, we saw the incredible grace that God shed on the Gibeonites and on Israel and on Joshua. Uh, we saw the incredible grace that God shed upon those to whom he has revealed himself. 
Now, today's text is a sobering reminder of what happens to those people that do not know God, that are, do not belong to him, that are not called by him. And even as we go through chapter 10 and see some, some pretty incredible battles and a lot of shed blood here, uh, deep down inside here, there's a reason for us to find hope. So I hope to be able to show that to you. Chapter 10 can be broken down into two major reports. Uh, as we look at this destruction that's forthcoming, we see the destruction itself in verses 1 through 39. And then we see uh, the dimension, the spatial area of the destruction in verses 40 through 43. Now, the destruction itself can be broken down into five different pieces, and that's going to make it a little easier for us to understand everything that's going on as we walk through these difficult verses here. So here, here are the five uh, snapshots, the five pictures, the five images of what that destruction looks like. Number one, verses one through five, we see the pagans. And in verses six and seven, we hear their plea. In verse eight, we hear a promise made to Joshua, made to the Gibeonites as well. In verses nine through 14, we see the provision for that promise. And in verses 15 through 39, we see what I call the plunder. Do you see how hard I work on these letters? Sometimes I've got to just make up words to make them fit. So sometimes I just steal them from someone else. But, but I, I hope you appreciate we've got D's and P's today, all right? I can see the lunch thing. I don't know what the sermon was about, but there were a lot of P's in it. So these snapshots that we're talking about are going to help us understand God moving through this narrative. So we see in verses 1 through 5, we see the battle lines are drawn. We get this initial list of pagan kings that are involved in this. They line up against the Gibeonites. They're the ones that are going to fight against the Gibeonites and God's people. We have Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem. We have Horam of Hebron. We have Piram of Yarmuth. We have Japhia of Eglon and uh, Japhia of Lachish and Debir of Eglon. If we remember from last week, and the lesson we had last week, Israel's camped at Gilgal. Gibeon, which is now under Joshua's command, under his control, is here, the second star on the map there. And the five kings and the kingdoms that they rule are just below that. You can see the five large red dots there. Now, the first thing I want you to see on this map is this. These five cities, six of them, including Gibeon, are strategically positioned at the most heavily trafficked points in the middle of Israel. Uh, and each of them occupies a strategic point around the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's kind of in the center of them. Now, Jerusalem is not yet a significant city, but it sits on top a 4,000-foot-high plateau, and it dominates the region. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into that in a little bit, but it, it, it is near the junction of uh, nearly every significant highway or byway that goes through the Mideast. Now, Jerusalem would be an ideal capital at some point. It, it, it could have great impact on communi communication and trade on nearly the entire world. I mean, back then, we have to remember, uh, all goods and services moved through caravans and on ships. Uh, all communication went by letter or by courier that moved with those caravans and trips. Jerusalem has the potential to influence the entire world because of its strategic positioning. Jerusalem is the prize. And this is why Jerusalem has been so prominent in the history of the entire world. It sits at the crossroads of everything. So I don't, we're, we're not told whether or not Joshua understands all of this. But you can see by the map that God is closing in on Jerusalem. It's going to be his. Here's the other thing that we see in these first five verses. There is a distinct contrast between the way the Gibeonites face this onslaught, the approaching uh, armies of Israel, the, the approaching armies of God, and the way the five kings approach it. They handle them differently. The Gibeonites see what's coming, they believe it, they acknowledge the power and the presence of God, they submit themselves to his people, to Joshua, and they choose to serve God rather than to die. The pagan kings, in fear, band together, and they're going to fight. 
They're going to resist. They have no intention of bowing down to Joshua, to Israel, or to their God. They believe in sheer numbers. They believe that their sheer numbers give them a chance against this advancing army that is yet to be truly defeated. They think they've got enough to be able to do it. They wisely decide to go against Gibeon instead of going against the main camp, thinking that if they can regain control over Gibeon, then they can go and attack Gilgal, which is downhill. It would give them the strategic advantage. So, so we see that these pagans have identified themselves. That's our first snapshot. Gibeons are attacked, and look what they do. They send out a message for help. This is the plea. This is our second snapshot. Joshua 10.6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Let me, let me explain exactly what's happening here. This is important. Gibeon is under siege. Yeah, you know, there are no slouchers. They're a city of warriors. They're actually, they had a reputation for being fierce warriors. And they're a very large city of warriors, but they are up against this massive alliance of pagan kings and armies whose intention is to overrun Gibeon and then attack Gilgal, attack Israel. So they send a messenger to Gilgal. Now, at first, you know, if you take a look at, at just the map, uh, it, it, that looks fairly easy. Gilgal's about uh, 20 miles away. Uh, uh, at best, a rider might be able to do that trip in a couple of hours, three, four hours or so. But we've got to remember that Gibeon is in the middle of hill country. And Gilgal is where? It's down in the Jordan Valley. There's a 4,000-foot elevation change between Gibeon and Gilgal. Here's what the area between Gibeon and Gilgal looks like. Take a look at that. That's what the area for about 15 of those 20 miles looks like if you leave Jordan, uh, if you leave the Jordan River and head towards Gibeon or come the other way. I spent some time there last May. They took us out in the middle of this place, and of course, when we got off the bus, we, we had, as we did everywhere else, we had an opportunity to buy some souvenirs and ride a camel. Um, that guy was waiting for us. Uh, but you can see that, you know, he's standing in typical terrain. The terrain is rough. It could have taken a day, maybe even for a fast rider, to get to Gilgal. But the message he carried was the important thing, and it was a message for help. So a day to get there, then the army's got to mobilize and move back. You know, 20 miles for an army that size might take two or three days or so. Help seemed to be a long ways away. They asked Joshua, though. They, they asked him to, Yasa, uh, the, the Hebrew says, to, to help them, to deliver them. Uh, they asked Joshua to save them. This becomes significant later. These people place themselves under the care of Joshua. They've trusted Joshua to be a godly man, led by a God with integrity, live up to the covenant they made with Israel back in chapter 9. Even though everybody knows the covenant was based on, on lies and deceit, Joshua and the leaders have promised to maintain their integrity, promised to show godliness regardless of the lack of integrity that the Gibeonites have shown. And now that commitment, uh, that godly behavior is going to be put to the extreme test because the easy thing for, for Joshua to do is just leave it alone and let those people die. The covenant would have been done. And in a passage filled with spectacular, supernatural events, I think we see our very first one in what happens here. This pagan, lost, lying, deceiving group of fierce warriors, something's changed in them. They've gone through some sort of transformation. They call out to Joshua and Israel. They call out to God's representatives. They ask for deliverance, trusting that God will motivate his people to answer them, trusting that God, that the God that they see in Joshua is a God that is faithful to his word, a God that is, is, has some integrity, a God that has the power to save them. Their plea is a desperate plea for salvation. 
And in verse 7, Joshua answers. He mobilizes his army. And in that, I believe we see a second miracle. And, and it has to do with this terrain and this countryside. This huge army moves 20 miles in a day. We're told in verse 9 that they, they come suddenly on the battle after traveling at night. You got to think about this. Because when I first read that, I said, well, you know, they probably got in their jeeps and turned on the headlights and the spotlights and just rode through the mountains. But they don't have any of those things. All they've got are horses and maybe some camels, and most of them are on foot. They travel through 20 miles of rough terrain, mostly at night. Here's the route they followed. This is called the Ascent of Adumim. Uh, they would have traveled along the ridges, along the mountain tops. It was not wise to travel in the valleys. The valleys look easier to navigate. But there were two problems with the valleys. Uh, there, the valleys are called wadis, by the way. Uh, the first thing that could happen in the wadi is you could get washed away. There could be a rainstorm many miles away somewhere up in the hill country, uh, and water will come washing down in the valley, and it, you can drown in it. Uh, the shepherds taught that. They taught that to young shepherds. You know, uh, shepherd tradition said, don't take your flock into the wadis. Don't go into the wadis. If you're down there and you hear the water coming, it's too late. You won't have time to get out. So they were in danger of being washed away if they went in the wadis. But the real danger was that they could be easily attacked. If you were down in the low ground and somebody attacked you from the high ground, it would be easy for them to defeat you. So when an army traveled, they traveled along the ridges. Uh, that was safe. That was a strategically strong position. So Joshua and his army traveled through the night at great speed over exceptionally difficult terrain. And, and then after making that trek, that, that grueling trek, they, they engage in a heated battle, a huge battle all in order to keep their word, defend a group of people who had lied to them and manipulated them into protecting them. That would be something good for us to consider as we deal with people who perhaps have lied and deceived us, people who may have manipulated us, people who have hurt us. Look what Joshua did. Why did he do it? Well, Israel moved because they were, regardless of their flaws, and they were certainly flawed, but they were a godly people. They moved because they were godly people. And as they moved, they received a promise from God. They're motivated by a promise directly from God. This is our third snapshot. The promise shows up in verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Utter defeat. Joshua and his army know that this promise is good. They've seen it before. They received it on the banks of the Jordan River. They received it at Jericho. They received it at Ai, but only after they found out that they couldn't go there apart from God. So they know that his, his promise is good, Then God is promising them, them victory against his huge army, and the promise is the third snapshot describing our destruction. Now Joshua knows what's going on. Israel knows what's going on. The Gibeonites believe what's going on, but the pagan kings think a little bit differently. That leads us to God's supernatural, miraculous provision, our fourth snapshot. This is verses 9 through 14. So we've already seen, I almost hate to use the word, but we've already seen some minor miracles, but they are minor compared to what's about to happen. We've seen the transformation of the Gibeonites. We've seen God's willingness to answer their plea for salvation. We've seen Israel's huge army moving on foot through terrible terrain in the dark of night. But if we want to be realistic about this, if we want to look at this through the pagan king's eyes, we, we need to understand that God has yet to do anything that might convince those people who oppose him to think that there's anything more going on here than a very proficient, very efficient war machine going through its paces. The kings have heard stories, they've heard rumors, enough to have a healthy concern about Israel. They know that, 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 that there's some kind of juggernaut moving through their country. But none of them have actually seen any of this happen. And all they really understand 
is power and might. They're kings with armies trying to defend their cities, trying to take land whenever they can. They have no understanding of the supernatural. Uh, at least they don't have any understanding of the supernatural movements of the one true God. Uh, so all they've got to go by are these stories and, and as they look around them, how big their army is. So they're about to experience the supernatural presence of God, but they haven't experienced it yet. Now, this is exactly why the southern kings think they can assemble and come against Gibeon. They understand force. And they believe that if they can muster enough force, if they can exhibit enough bravado, if they can kind of power their way through this, they can defeat Joshua and Israel. There's a lesson to be learned in there. It, and, you know, looking at that and understanding their motivation should cause us to wonder. Wonder if there's any areas in our life that we do the same sort of thing that the five pagan kings are doing. It's easy to doubt anything but hard evidence. It's easy to, to find ourselves to believe that we can, by sheer force, get control of our situation. That we can, by the power of our presence, get the upper hand over anybody and everybody who's in our circle of influence and make things turn out the way we want to turn them out. Yeah, with no regard to what God is doing, with no regard to, to uh, his presence, to his power, feeling like we're on our own, looking around and saying, we don't like this situation, somebody's got to do something. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Have you ever said it yourself? I've done it. I can't think of one time when I've said somebody's got to do something and then I did it that it had any impact, at least not what I was looking for. But we take matters into our own hands. We look and we go, well, you know, I've prayed for this, I've prayed for that, I've asked God for these things, I've asked him to do this over there, and he hasn't done it, so now I've got to do it myself. Or I'm, if we want to be really spiritual about it, we go, oh, now I'm led to do it. Somebody's got to do something. That's what the pagan kings were thinking. Somebody's got to do something about this with no regard nor belief of what the one true God was doing. See, that mindset can cause us to miss the move of God. It can cause us to look for results in one area while God is working in another. We can miss the bigger thing that God is doing. In our little provision snapshot here, God leaves no question as to whether or not he is in active control of the situation. In order to assert his omnipotence, in order to assert his his presence in order to show that Joshua is his man and that Israel are his people God begins to work miracles he begins to do supernatural stuff to ensure that the world understands that Joshua is his man and Israel are his people in verse 10 he causes listen to what he does he causes the the pagan armies these fierce warriors this multitude of people that are going to come up against Gibeon to fall into panic. God moves in what we call, uh, the Hebrews call Hamam, to throw them into confusion. And in their panic, Israel strikes a mighty blow against them and sets them on the run. They turn around and start to flee. They're so afraid, they just start to run away. And Israel chases the armies across the ascent of Beth Horon. Now, this is west of Gibeon. It's right there on the map. Bet Horon just happens to be the easiest way to approach Jerusalem from the west. You actually, if you're coming from the south, you need to go north and then cut across and then come down a little bit. It's the easiest way to do it. But that also makes it the easiest way to run away from Jerusalem. And that's what the kings are doing. The, the five kings take it all the way down to Azekah. Um, and by the time they get down to Azekah, the uh, terrain has changed fairly significantly. This is Azekah. Um, there's not much there anymore, just a little foundation of a building, uh, but you can get a really great view of the ascent of Bet Horon. We've got the little red uh, dotted line that shows you where it goes, running down into the south. Azekah also is significant, it pops up a number of times. It overlooks the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is where David will eventually fight Goliath, right about in that area, right there. Somewhere in all that, somewhere right in this vicinity, God throws large hailstones down on the kings, killing more of them than Joshua kills with the sword. But, and, and now all that's pretty incredible. 
We had all this stuff going on. There's rocks coming down from the sky, hailstones so big they can kill a man. And, but the, the real spectacular thing hasn't happened yet. What God's going to make his most powerful move uh, there in, in uh, verse 12 and 13. We see Joshua asked God to make... Joshua asked God to make the sun and the moon stand still. We need to think this through. Uh, and he asked him to do it long enough for he and his army to win the battle and to complete this route. Joshua's... We need to think this through. Joshua's request comes in the form of a song. Now, whenever you're reading scripture and you see the indentations, that's, that's a hymn. That's a poem. It's usually a song. Joshua goes to the Lord. He's in the middle of this huge battle. He's been promised a victory. He's praying, and this song rises up in him. Now, I, I know that we appreciate coming together on Sunday morning. We appreciate uh, lifting up our voices, joining our spirits in praise of the Lord. Uh, I, I love to hear the congregation sing. I like to be part of that. Uh, but this is something a little bit different. Have you ever sang to the Lord? Have you ever felt like the Lord wanted to hear you sing? Joshua, I, just the way I see this, is Joshua is, is so committed to what the Lord is doing, been so blessed by by. What God is moving, he's watching all this stuff happening. He's watching the hailstones come down. And he realized that the battle is about to be won, but the day's not long enough. And so he audaciously says, Lord, I, I need more time. Can, can you stop the sun and the moon? I've seen all these other things you do. And this beautiful lyrical song. I, I mean, in the Hebrew, there's meter and there's balance in here. It kind of doesn't translate to English as well as it might, but it rises up and comes flowing out of Joshua. And look what he asked them to do, to stop the sun and the moon. We got to think about that because God does it. He stops the sun for a complete day, it says. I mean, you know, we know, we, we know all of the technicalities about the earth is turning, the sun's not really moving, in. but we're looking at this through the author's perspective. To him, the sun seems to stand still. So we don't want to be too literal on this. But think about it for a second. The way we understand the physical world, the earth can't stop rotating. We're, you know, it, it's part of the gravity that holds us down on the earth is the earth's rotation. So supposedly, if it stopped rotating, uh, it, it we would all get thrown off of it. Think, think about the implications. What happens to the tides? What happens to the wind? What happens to the orbit that the earth is in around the sun? I mean, this is absolutely impossible to do, and God does it. It's an incredible request. I don't know if Joshua expected God to do it. I know he felt like he could, but, but God does it. Then we see this in verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. And we need to read that verse carefully. Maybe as much for what it doesn't say as what it does. It doesn't say that God obeyed Joshua. It doesn't say that God submitted to Joshua. What it says is that God heard Joshua. And when it talks about there hasn't been a day like this, it's talking about there hasn't been a day where the earth and the sun haven't moved. And why did God do this? Why would he do this? To show that he, God, fought for Israel. That he was the power and the presence behind Israel's victory. So you look at all that, and, and now you say, you know, we had these pagan kings that were thought that force was the, ash, the issue, thought that they could overcome it by sheer numbers. And, and after all this, is there any doubt in anyone's mind that God is giving victory to Israel and to Joshua? You know, all the people in the region... They're standing there at somewhere around 5, 5, 36 o'clock going, shouldn't the sun be going down? <laughs> what, what, what's going on here? Okay, and it stays up all night long. I, I mean, everybody sees what's happening here. Would anybody fail to understand that God not only answers his people, but he saves them supernaturally? Isn't that what he's doing for the Gibeonites? 
God provides physically. God provides spiritually. And his provision is not only complete, it is absolutely perfect. It does exactly what he intends it to do. Now that brings us to our fifth snapshot of the destruction. And it's the plunder. It's the spoils of this war. And the spoils are as rich as the fighting is brutal. Joshua captures the five kings. They get sealed in a cave until the battle is won. And it is won. It is apparently without Israel suffering any loss. Verse 21 says, All the people returned safe to Makeda. God's plan and his miracles are effective in what he designed them to do. He's the only one, he was showing that he's the only one behind Israel's victory. And look at the impact it has on everybody in the area. Verse 21b, second half of verse 21. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. They didn't dare. And immediately after that, we get a glimpse of the awful and terrifying fate of those who come against God and his people. Verses 22 through 27, the kings are hanged. They're thrown back in a cave where they're sealed in permanently. Then in quick succession, Makeda, Libna, Lachish, Gezer, Eglon, and Hebron, and Debir are all taken. And their kings are all executed. And all their people are killed as well. There's no one left in any of those cities. To see exactly what's going on, you take a look at the map of the region, you, you'll make a few discoveries. One is that they're all strategically located. We talked about that a little bit earlier. They control highways, entrances to valleys, uh, access to the ascents where, where the armies could move, river crossings, and primarily what they control, listen, is water supplies. And we don't think about this, but in Joshua's day, whoever controls water Whoever owns the wells controls the area for miles around that area. Surrounding lands, you got the well, you've got control. See, water is a strategic tool. It was used for so many things. It could be used to regulate travel and commerce. You had to go to the city to get water. You needed water to live. Uh, water was necessary for the livestock to be sustained. Uh, water was necessary for crops to grow. It was largely an arid region. Water's necessary to support an army, to send them in the battle. Each one of these large towns had a large cistern in it. Now, a cistern is, a, is an in-the-ground chamber designed to hold a lot of water. Uh, some of them, like this one in the Negev, had, the cisterns were actually huge tunnel systems that you could walk through. Uh, we walked through them. Uh, they would hold millions of gallons of water. And if you control the water, you control the air. And that's what happened with these, with these first group of cities that we're looking at. So, so you see what God was doing in this strategic occupation. He's giving the land to his people. He's fulfilling his promises. And as he's preparing the, the, the region for them to stay there for a very, very long time. Now that's the practical side of the destruction that we've seen. The people had to be displaced so that God's people could live there safely, peacefully, and permanently. But there's a spiritual side as well. And that's even more prominent. It's even more significant. The destruction and all this brutality. Listen. All this bloodshed we've seen in chapter 10, this is a picture, brothers and sisters, of sin. This is a picture of the impact that sin has on the lives of the people who engage in it. See, if, if, if we look at Joshua as a book of warfare, if we see it as a set of strategies for invasion and occupation, we're going to miss the point. There's nothing wrong with looking at Joshua and his strategies. They're good strategies. They're godly strategies. They help to bring victory. But that's not where the lessons are. The lessons are in the devastation and the destruction that sin and the rejection of God can bring into somebody's life. We see, we see that in what happens to the kings, don't we? We see what, how the kings have risen up. We, we, we know that they're powerful. We know that they've got enough to bring together armies. But we see what happens to them. Sin takes success. 
It perverts it. It magnifies it. And then it causes the sinner to lose everything in the end. That's what happened to the kings. Sin brutalizes the sinner and those people who are gathered around the sinner. Sin will set you up and make you feel like a king, but only until you face the wrath of God and his foot lands on your neck and your decaying body is sealed up in darkness forever, leaving all of your plunder behind. You need to think about that. That's the picture we see in Joshua chapter 10. And that brings us to our second report. The dimensions of the destruction. Here are the areas that Joshua controls at the end of chapter 10. He's got the major portion of the center of the, the southern part of the country. This is just the initial foray into the kingdom. In chapter 11, document the taking of the, the, the lands of the northern kingdom and some of the areas towards the coast. We're going to touch on that lightly next week. We'll talk lightly about how the land is allotted to all of the tribes. And then we're going to pick up on chapter 20. We'll go on to chapter 20 next week. You can read ahead if you like. So, so we've heard a lot of history. We've seen a lot of maps. Hopefully, hopefully we've learned a couple of practical lessons out of chapter 10 so far. But what, what, what's our take home? What have I learned from Joshua chapter 10 that can impact me tomorrow morning when I've got to get up and start my day? How, do, how have I learned more about walking the walk of a follower of Christ in Joshua chapter 10? Well, first thing, I, I, I hope we remember the devastation that sin brings and how, how serious God is about sin. This is just something we need to, to be acutely aware of. For those who don't believe, if, it, it, you know, you've got to do something with chapter 10 of Joshua if you're not a believer. You've got to either say, you know what, I, I think that's made up. Uh, but we're, we're, we're talking about historical events here. I mean, we've got archaeological evidence. We've got uh, uh, independent verification from uh, uh, other historians. So this is, I, I mean... You either got to face Joshua chapter 10 or totally disregard it if you're not a believer. If, if, you, if you understand what's happening in chapter 10, this has got to be one of the scariest chapters in the Bible if you're not a believer. And I would, I would encourage you, if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, to go read chapter 10 again this afternoon on your own and assume the role of one of the kings. Pretend like you're one of the kings and what they're thinking and, and realize that they were not only fighting against God's people, they were fighting against God himself. And God is serious about sin. So here's another lesson, and this one would be for those of you who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. This is a lesson that we've seen all along in Joshua. We saw it in the sin of Achan. We, we saw it at I. We see that God loves his children. They belong to him eternally. But when they sin, there are consequences. The consequences never change your status as his people, but they, the, the consequences certainly remove them from his provision as protection. When they sin, they remove themselves from underneath the wing of God. They're no longer under his protection. That Their sin has separated them from them, not eternally, but temporally. So you and I have to strive to be obedient. Now, some people don't like that word. Some people go, oh, that's works. Don't tell me about works. That's legalism. But isn't that what we see? Aren't we told that we are to strive to be godly people? Paul uses the word four times. Don't we see it in the Gibeonites? Isn't that what they're doing? in their flawed, new believer, I don't understand how it all works kind of way. Aren't they striving to become one of God's people? And when they receive the promise of protection, they trust. They trust God. They called on God. They trusted in his word. They called out to him, to his messenger, to Joshua, for deliverance. And what happened? They were delivered. Well, so they were delivered, John. What does that mean to us? 
Listen, if we're going to get everything that is in there in the Old Testament, if we're, going to, if we're going to mine the Old Testament for all the truth that it has, we have to have an understanding that it is filled with shadows. It is filled with portents. It is filled with pictures of Christ. The shadows are incomplete. The shadows are imperfect, but they point the way to Christ so that as we travel through the Old Testament, we can see how God operates a little at a time. Now, the process is called progressive revelation. And it's here to show us two things. God reveals a little bit of time about his character and nature and his plan to us for two reasons. Number one, to show that God is in control of all things all the time. And the second thing that we see is that by the time the Messiah comes, there is no excuse to miss him. God has been showing us these little lessons for 4,000 years. Little by little, he's been revealing himself. Here, in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua is a shadow of Christ. He's a portent of Christ in his neighborhood, in, in this narrative. God uses him to bring salvation to the Gibeonites. And there's a picture of how he will one day bring salvation to the world. The only way for the Gibeonites to avoid the wrath that they know is headed their way was to unite themselves with Joshua and his army. The only way anyone can avoid the wrath of God in the final judgment, a wrath that is headed our way just as surely as Israel's army was headed up the ascent of Edumim, is to unite ourselves with Christ. It's the only way out of the wrath. Our union and our submission to Christ will deliver us from wrath, the wrath of God the same way that the Gibeonites' union to Joshua delivered them. God gives us a portent. Story is a shadow. It's a shadow of our story. As we read the Old Testament, we have to see ourselves in the Hebrew people. If we don't, we're not going to learn the lessons that God intends to teach us. It's not a history book, it's a revelation to the character and nature of God. And it's a valuable part of the revelation. Anybody that tells you the Old Testament has no spiritual value to us is just plain wrong. Okay, those are good lessons, amen? What do we learn about God? Beloved, we learned about new believers calling out to God. We learned about armies running full tilt through the middle of the night and getting where they need to be just to answer that call. We learned about supernatural terror and confusion and panic, falling on the enemies of God. And then to finish the job, we learned about large rocks falling upon them. God said, well, that's not enough. Let's smash them too. And if that's not enough, we learned that the physically impossible is possible with God. The sun can stand still. Make what you want of it. I believe the sun stood still. It's what the Word of God says. What we've learned is that God saves supernaturally. We've learned that God saves supernaturally. Now, this is probably more important than many of us think. Again, we discussed at the beginning of the sermon. On one hand, it's a little bit of a duh, but consider this. Supernatural events are beyond our understanding. They defy our sense of reason by their very nature. They defy our understanding of how the world and, and physics work. In order to be saved, we had to be made undead. Scripture tells us that while we were still dead in our sins, that God saved us. In other words, we had to be changed. We had to be transformed. And that's just the beginning of the supernatural change that God is taking us through. That, that, that has to take place in order for us to be saved. There's no way to explain what has happened to those of us who believe in Christ other than to accept that something supernatural has occurred to us. Something that defies reason. Something that we have to accept by faith. Do you understand? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you understand that you, if you have received him as Savior and Lord, repented from your sins, do you understand that you have been touched by God, that he has reached deep down inside you, 
and touched you at the very core of your being and begun to change you? Do you understand that if that's true, that that's happening right now? That wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, that God has taken you seriously and has begun to change you and it's happening inside you right now. But John, I don't feel like a change is happening inside me right now. It doesn't matter. It's based on his move not yours and not your feelings. I think you can fight it, but you ain't going to stop it. That change, that change is going to go on forever. Forever. Just as we're saved by Christ. Now, now maybe we get an understanding what supernatural movement is like. But here's the scary part. Just as we're saved by Christ supernaturally, those who refuse Christ are going to be doomed supernaturally. And let me tell you something, the terror that those five kings experienced when they started running from Gibeon, a, a terror and confusion that sent vast, powerful armies running away in panic. I always think about Monty Python, run away, run away, run away, okay? Uh, that they're running down the, the ascent of Beth Horon, trying in vain to escape the wrath that has come after them. That terror is nothing compared to the terror that is coming for those who haven't received Christ. Because, because God, the creator and owner of everything, saves supernaturally. And that's the way he condemns as well, supernaturally. If you're on the wrong side of that wrath, don't wait. Repent. Believe in Christ. The wrath is coming. And if you believe, if you believe, we, got, we have every reason to rejoice. We have every reason to celebrate. If you believe that and you realize that every battle that you will ever see, every battle that you have ever engaged in has been won already. God's going to deliver you into heaven. He's going to bring you into his presence. The primary battle for your soul has, has been achieved. The purpose in the cross has been attained and you are saved. That gives us reason to stand up. Stand up, brothers and sisters. Let's sing about the battle and how it belongs to the Lord.